Section 34 of Aaliyah and the Last Essays of Aaliyah. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Aaliyah and the Last Essays of Aaliyah by Charles Lamb. Elistoniana. My acquaintance with the pleasant creature, whose loss we all deplore, was but slight. My first introduction to E, which afterwards ripened into an acquaintance a little on this side of intimacy, was over a counter of the Leamington Spa Library, then newly entered upon by a branch of his family. E, whom nothing misbecame, to aspiciate, I suppose, the filial concern, and set it a-going with a luster, was serving in person two damsels fair, who had come into the shop ostensibly to inquire for some new publication, but in reality to have a sight of the illustrious shopman, hoping some conference. With what an air did he reach down the volume, dispassionately giving his opinion upon the worth of the work in question, and launching out into a dissertation on its comparative merits with those of certain publications of a similar stamp, its rivals. His enchanted customers fairly hanging on his lips, subdued to their authoritative sentence so have i seen a gentleman in comedy acting the shopman so lovelace sold his gloves in king street i admire the histrionic art by which he contrived to carry clean away every notion of disgrace from the occupation he had so generously submitted to and from that hour i judged him with no after repentance to be a person with whom it would be a felicity to be more acquainted to descant upon his merits as a comedian would be superfluous. With his blended private and professional habits alone I have to do, that harmonious fusion of the manners of the player into those of everyday life, which brought the stage boards into streets and dining parlors and kept up the play when the play was ended. I like Wrench, a friend was saying to him one day, because he is the same natural, easy creature on the stage that he is off. My case exactly, retorted Elliston, with a charming forgetfulness that the converse of a proposition does not always lead to the same conclusion. I am the same person off the stage that I am on. The inference, at first sight, seemed identical, but examine it a little, and it confesses only that the one performer was never, and the other, always acting. And, in truth, this was the charm of Elliston's private deportment. You had a spirited performance always going on before your eyes with nothing to pay. As where a monarch takes up his casual abode for a night, the poorest hovel which he honors by his sleeping in it, becomes ipso facto for that time a palace. So wherever Elliston walked, sate, or stood still, there was the theatre. He carried about with him his pit, boxes, and galleries, and set up his portable playhouse at corners of streets and in the marketplaces. Upon flintiest pavements he trod the board still, and, if his theme chanced to be passionate, the green baize carpet of tragedy spontaneously rose beneath his feet. Now this was hearty, and showed a love for his art. So Appel's always painted in thought, so G.D. always poetizes. 
I hate a lukewarm artist. I have known actors, and some of them of Elliston's own stamp, who shall have agreeably been amusing you in the part of a rake or a coxcomb through the two or three hours of their dramatic existence. But no sooner does the curtain fall with its leaden clatter, but a spirit of lead seems to seize on all their faculties. They emerge sour, morose persons, intolerable to their families, servants, etc. Another shall have been expanding your heart with generous deeds and sentiments, till it even beats with yearnings of universal sympathy. You absolutely long to go home and do some good action. The play seems tedious till you can get fairly out of the house and realize your laudable intentions. At length the final bell rings, and this cordial representative of all that is amiable in human breasts steps forth, a miser. Elliston was more of a piece. Did he play Ranger? And did Ranger fill the general bosom of the town with satisfaction? Why should he not be Ranger? and diffuse the same cordial satisfaction among his private circles. With his temperament, his animal spirits, his good nature, his follies perchance, could he do better than identify himself with impersonation? Are we to like a pleasant rake or coxcomb on the stage, and give ourselves airs of aversion for the identical character presented to us in actual life? or what would the performer have gained by divesting himself of the impersonation? Could the man, Elliston, have been essentially different from his part, even if he had avoided to reflect to us studiously in private circles the airy briskness, the forwardness, and scapegoat trickeries of his prototype? But there is something not natural in this everlasting acting. We want the real man." Are you quite sure it is not the man himself whom you cannot or will not see under some adventitious trappings which, nevertheless, sit not at all in consistency upon him? What if it is the nature of some men to be highly artificial? The fault is least reprehensible in players. Sibber was his own Foppington, with almost as much wit as Vanberg could add to it. My conceit of his person, it is Ben Jonson speaking of Lord Bacon, was never increased towards him by his place or honours. But I have, and do, reverence him for the greatness that was only proper to himself, in that he seemed to me ever one of the greatest men that have been in many ages. In his adversity I ever prayed that heaven would give him strength, for greatness he could not want. The quality here commended was scarcely less conspicuous in the subject of these idle reminiscences than in my lord Verulam. Those who have imagined that an unexpected elevation to the direction of a great London theatre affected the consequence of Elliston, or at all changed his nature, knew not the essential greatness of the man whom they disparage. It was my fortune to encounter him near St. Dunstan's Church, which, with its punctual giants, is now no more than dust and a shadow, on the morning of his election to that high office. Grasping my hand with a look of significance, he only uttered, Have you heard the news? Then, with another look following up the blow, he subjoined, I am the future manager of Drury Lane Theatre. Breathless as he saw me, he stayed not for congratulation or reply, but mutely stalked away, 
leaving me to chew upon his new-blown dignities at leisure. In fact, nothing could be said to it. Expressive silence alone could muse his praise. This was in his great style. But was he less great? Be witness, O ye powers of equanimity, that supported in the ruins of Carthage the consular exile, and more recently transmuted for a more illustrious exile the barren constableship of Elba into an image of imperial France, when in melancholy after years, again much near the same spot, I met him, when that sceptre had been wrested from his hand, and his dominion was curtailed to the petty managership and part proprietorship of the small Olympic. His Elba? He still played nightly upon the boards of Drury, but, in parts, alas, allotted to him, not magnificently distributed by him. Waving his great loss as nothing, and magnificently sinking the sense of fallen material grandeur, in the more liberal resentment of depreciations done to his more lofty intellectual pretensions, have you heard his customary exordium have you heard said he how they treat me they put me in comedy thought i but his finger on his lips forbade any verbal interruption where could they have put you better then after a pause where i formerly played romeo now i play mercutio and so on again he stalked away neither staying nor caring for responses Oh, it was a rich scene, but Sir A. C., the best of the storytellers and surgeons, who mends a lame narrative almost as well as he sets a fracture, alone could do justice to it, that I was witness to in the tarnished room, that had once been green, of that same little Olympic. There, after his deposition from Imperial Drury, he substituted a throne, that Olympic hill was his highest heaven, himself Jove in his chair. There he sat in state, while before him, on complaint of prompter, was brought for judgment, how shall I describe her, one of those little tawdry things that flirt at the tails of choruses, a probationer for the town, in either of its senses, the pertest little drab, a dirty fringe and appendage of the lamp's smoke who, it seems on some disappropriation expressed by a highly respectable audience, had precipitously quitted her station on the boards and withdrawn her small talents in disgust. "'And how dare you?' said her manager, assuming a censorial severity which would have crushed the confidence of a vestress, and disarmed that beautiful rebel herself of her professional caprices. I verily believe he thought her standing before him. How dare you, madam, withdraw yourself without a notice from your theatrical duties? I was hissed, sir. And have you the presumption to decide upon the taste of the town? I don't know that, sir, but I will never stand to be hissed, was the subjoiner of young confidence, when gathering up his features into one significant mass of wonder, pity, and expostulatory indignation, in a lesson never to have been lost upon a creature less forward than she who stood before him, his words were these, They have hissed me. T'was the identical argument a fortiari, 
which the son of Peleus uses to Lycaon trembling under his lance, to persuade him to take his destiny with good grace. I, too, am mortal. And it is to be believed that in both cases the rhetoric missed of its application, for want of a proper understanding with the faculties of the respective recipients. Quite an opera pit, he said to me, as he was courteously conducting me over the benches of his Surrey theatre, the last retreat and recess of his everyday waning grandeur. Those who knew Elliston will know the manner in which he pronounced the latter sentence of the few words I am about to record. One proud day, to me, he took his roast mutton with us in the temple, to which I had superadded a preliminary haddock. After a rather plentiful partaking of the meagre banquet, not unrefreshed with the humbler sort of liquors, I made a sort of apology for the humility of the fare, observing that, for my own part, I never ate but of one dish at dinner. I, too, never eat but one thing at dinner, was his reply, then, after a pause, reckoning fish as nothing. His manner was all. It was as if by one preemptory sentence he had decreed the annihilation of all the savory esculents, which the pleasant and nutritious food-giving ocean pours forth upon poor humans from her watery bosom. This was greatness tempered with considerate tenderness to the feelings of his scanty but welcoming entertainer. Great wert thou in thy life, Robert William Elliston, and not lessened in thy death, if report speak truly, which says that thou didst direct that thy mortal remains should repose under no inscription but one of pure Latinity. Classical was thy bringing up, and beautiful was the feeling on thy last bed, which, connecting the man with the boy, took thee back in thy latest exercise of imagination to the days when, undreaming of theatres and managerships, thou wert a scholar, and an early ripe one, under the roofs builded by the munificent and pious Colette. For thee the Pauline muses weep. In elegies that shall silence this crude prose, they shall celebrate thy praise. End of section 34